Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm David Ross and welcome to episode seven of The Sun's new podcast, Israel's War on Terror. Since October the 7th, when the Hamas terror group took around 240 hostages as it massacred 1,200 people, behind the scenes talks have been held to try and negotiate a release. Mediators from Qatar, Egypt and the US are among those who've worked to get a deal done between Israel and Hamas. As a four-day ceasefire kicks in, families of hostages are trying to process their experience and there are more questions than answers. What do you say to a child who's been in captivity for more than six weeks, who may not have parents or a home to go back to? Earlier, I put some of these questions to psychoanalyst Dr. Ofrit Shapira Berman, who is working with the families as part of the Hostages and Missing Families Forum. So we, we, we actually do our best to give every family member who says he needs help, we give him a psychoanalyst to support him. It's not quite therapy at the moment. Uh, people are too much into the trauma and actually need to hold up their strength. So it's extremely difficult to go into deeper uh, layers or into the deeper feelings. But we do our best to support them and to actually help them to, to hold on to a very, very difficult present. And how has the therapy developed over time since that initial first horrifying shock of, of what happened to the drip feed of information from the IDF and from, from the government. And as various deals have been attempted to be negotiated, how has that changed? So I can actually say um, I've been just meeting today with one of the aunts of, um, of the 19 years old girl who was kidnapped. And I can actually say that things are getting tougher and tougher as time goes by. Um, I think when I first started working with the family, they were in a combination of shock, but also they had, um, they had a lot of hope to see their daughter soon. And as time goes by, and on this Saturday, it's going to be seven weeks since they actually lost their child, and it is in terms of lost. Um, they're getting more and more depressed, less and less um, hopeful, very, very afraid um, as to her situation, to her health. They have a lot more trouble to handle both their lives, like in terms of should they get back to work? Should they keep themselves busy just with fighting for her return? The family is actually, um, in a way, breaking down. This girl has um, three siblings, younger. One is older than her and two are younger. Um, it's extremely difficult for them to be at home and to be in touch with their parents because their parents are so devastated. 
And one of her brothers uh, is 11 years old. He has actually moved out of the house and he stays away at family rel- with family relatives because he can't bear to see his mother um, so devastated. So we're actually seeing more and more issues with the families and more and more family members are reaching out to have help. They seem to be weaker than they used to be six weeks ago. In terms of the actual specifics of the trauma that individuals are experiencing, how has the level of brutality that was witnessed on October the 7th impacted these relatives when compared to, to let's say, previous incidents, albeit terror is terror, but there seems to have been a deliberate level here to make things as, as sickening as possible? They've been affected vastly and horribly. They are all very concerned with the the violence that either their loved ones have witnessed or have endured themselves. For example, the family that I'm supporting personally, the daughter has been um, photographed with um, stains of blood. Um, It's obvious that she's wounded and actually her pants are all bloodied and they are profoundly terrified of the possibility that she was sexually abused. Um, another family that I know on a closer note, has it's a man whose wife and, and three children have been kidnapped. The younger is four years old. Um, another another boy is eight and his older daughter is just 10. And they have actually witnessed um, somebody shot into their safe room, um, a three-year-old baby, toddler, who was covered always blood because her parents were murdered and someone found her sitting or lying on the body of her mother and he just picked her up and brought her to another safe house and and they've they found the phone of their daughter who was kidnapped all of them were kidnapped from the safe room and and that man found the the, the the cell phone of his daughter in which she texted her mother so the other children wouldn't hear is it true that this girl's parents were murdered so he's now waiting for his children to come back um He's very hopeful that they will be back in this um, prison deal. And he's terrified of what his children have witnessed. And of course, no one has any idea what their medical situation is because the Red Cross um, was not allowed to meet them. So we do know that some of them were wounded, were shot, but we have no idea what the situation. And parents are beginning to talk about how scared they are to meet their children. They have no idea what their children have witnessed um, before they were kidnapped. They have no idea what they've been through while in Gaza. And of course, many of these people who were taken um, hostage have witnessed um, the most horrible atrocities ever. We have no idea what to expect in terms of the people who will be back. What advice are you giving them to cope with things hour by hour, day by day? We are now trying to help them understand that perhaps one of their struggles is coming to an end in the next few days, but only for another one, which may be a very, very long one, is just about to begin. That it may be that the first few days will be um, happy and blissful, but it's just a matter of time uh, until the trauma would come out. Um, and the trauma would come out, and it, it's going to be, for most of these people, a profound trauma that will need years and years of therapy. And, and you know, one of the, one of the men that um, we've been supporting um, has this idea that uh, he keeps saying, uh, telling his therapist that, well, if, he says, if my wife was raped, 
then that's the end of everything because she wouldn't be able to, to get out of it and, and I'm going to lose her. If she's not, if she hasn't been raped, then everything is going to be okay. And of course, nothing is going to be okay. It's just um, whether she was raped or, or she wasn't raped, it's, um, they, he will need to face and to adjust to a completely new reality that, again, I'm saying no one in the Western world has, um, has ever had to treat um, children who were kidnapped or women for, for such a long time. It's, um, it's unheard. We know, we know these situations in Africa. We know that in Nigeria, people, young women were kidnapped and held for, for years away. And some of them didn't want to come back. Of course, this is not the situation. They, they are, they are. I'm sorry for the, for the cynical. They are dying to come back, but it's going to be a very difficult situation. Those first few days, as you've mentioned, what are you telling the relatives to do in terms of an approach when, in in the event that they are the inverted commas lucky ones whose kids, wives sisters are are returned what are you telling them in terms of an approach how to react and how to be is it the way everything is is going to be impacted from sleep to food everything i'll tell you first what my first association is not necessarily what i tell the people the the relatives that but i'm thinking like it's like a new it's a new mother who, who wants to meet her new baby for the first time and and it may be um, a baby who is not well, and she has to be uh, very, very attentive to to the clues that, that the baby gives her as to what he needs. And it may be a baby that um, may not want anyone to hold him because it may be overwhelming for him, or it may be a baby that needs to be held um, 24-7. And since it's not a baby, it will be more difficult, actually, because I think we do tend to think that if it's not a baby and it's a person that can talk, then he may be um, quite clear in what he needs. But probably the hostages themselves will not know what they need. They will be, they may be irritated, they may be withdrawn, they may be very scared of everything, they may be unable to sleep in their own beds. Like one of the things that we keep telling the parents that they should be prepared for the children to want and to need to sleep in the parents' uh, bedrooms. And we also have to take into account that many of, this, of these children were kidnapped from areas that were already in a way traumatized. So, and, and they're coming back to a country that is still in war. So we, we're not having as many missiles as we used to have, but um, it's not completely quiet here. So everything is going to be probably very, very tense and and they will need to be very attentive. And we're also trying to prepare them um, to the difficulty that they may experience in um, having to serve someone. They will need to be um, in service of their family. And it's not easy. They, the family themselves have, had, have been traumatized in the last six weeks. They, many of them have, um, have witnessed the atrocities of, of October 7th. It's not like some of them, of course, are not living, were not living in the Kibbutzim in, at the South, but many of them were kidnapped from their homes. And like, for example, the father that I'm talking about, the three children kidnapped, he himself was wounded at October 7th, and he had to have an operation, and 
when the doctors asked him, who do you want us to inform? He said, there's no one to inform. My family is gone. It's not like we have a healthy person who has to treat someone who is coming back with a trauma. We have traumatized people who need to be in service of other traumatized people. And that, of course, adds a lot to the difficulty. And of those who, who come back, some, as we know, are, are young kids, there may be a level of disassociation. They may not remember their family in some cases. Most of the children were kidnapped alongside with one of their parents. So we do, I mean, the the very young children, we do have um, the three years old that I, that I spoke about before, the one who was found on the body of her parents. Um, her, her, both her parents were murdered, so... But she's three years old. I, I do think she 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 is she will remember her, her parents. And actually, when she was found and she was asked what happened, she said, they killed my parents. We do have a 10-month-year-old baby, but he was kidnapped alongside with his mother. So the only hope I think we have and our hopes have been reduced to the smallest particles, I do hope that they weren't separated. But it should also be said that there are some children that, um, the Hamas has lost touch with, that we don't know where they are. So this is going to be one of, I think, the most painful experiences for families with children who expect them to be back and they may find out in a day or two or two or three or four that their children are gone. We have no idea where they are. That's going to be an extremely painful experience. I recently interviewed a member of Zaka, the first responders whose job it is to recover the, the remains of terror victims. He told me that the therapists need therapists. Yeah. I was wondering how, how you and, 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 and you guys were coping. So first of all, we are supporting Zaka, for, for example, and we are now actually, we, we've just received a request from the um, people who, from the pathologist. They're all, you know, experts, physicians. They are so traumatized, they can't hold it up. One of them said that he was um, at the shift for 20, just 24 hours. That's it. And he came back home and he told his wife, I want to die. I can't bear it. I can speak only of the psychoanalyst, okay, because this is the group that I'm working with. Um, most of us are well analyzed, okay? Some are still not. I hope they will return to analysis, but we're very strong people. We've all had probably the deepest treatment possible. But we are being supervised. I mean, we have asked all the people, all the analysts who are supporting um, bereaved families or families of those who were kidnapped or families of the survivors. The survivors are also in a terrible situation to participate in group supervision. Um, for them to be able to speak out and just share what they're some of what they're going through. But I do think that most of us are just holding it, everything inside and we are probably being supported by our family. At least I am. When I come back from seeing the survivors or the kidnapped, uh, the family of the kidnapped, I, I just stop with my husband and I sort of try to share with him at least some of the most difficult feelings that I hear. But it's basically we are holding up and I think we're waiting for our turn and we may have to wait for years. There aren't enough therapists to treat the therapist. But until then, you'll continue doing what you're doing to, to help those affected. 24-7. We are completely dedicated to that. Only thing I think that wakes me up at night, the only nightmare that I have is that someone has asked for help for help, and for some reason I didn't get him a therapist. This is what I, me and all of my colleagues, we just dedicate all of our time for that. 
It's the only thing that we care about. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Psychoanalyst Dr. Ofrit Shapira-Berman there. So just how delicate is this ceasefire and what would have to happen for it to fall apart? Retired Major General Rupert Jones was the deputy commander of the Combined Joint Task Force, which defeated ISIS. He says it won't take much for hostilities to resume. These are these are really difficult judgments because when you look at it in simple mathematical terms, uh, 50 Israelis being handed back, 150 Palestinians being released out of jail. You know, there's really difficult nuances uh, in in that. Um, I think that you know the devil's in the detail, and I'm sure all parties won't be resting on their laurels. The the, the logistic details of affecting a handover, uh, maintaining confidence throughout the process will be will be very very difficult. And with your military and theatre of war experience, how frustrating do you think it might be for the heads of the IDF? in that presumably they've made significant progress in their military operation to eliminate Hamas, but now that progress is stalled. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, they, I think the military commands will absolutely understand the necessity. You know, they've been running a twin-track military operation. Part of it is about destroying Hamas. The other part is getting hostages back. Um, and uh, getting 50 hostages back will be a will be a great thing for the military commanders. Nonetheless, uh, they will feel they're losing a bit of momentum. Uh, it gives them an opportunity, of course, to take stock, uh, get some a little bit of rest, bring forward supplies, and just you know reconsolidate a bit. But of course, it equally gives the enemy, Hamas, the opportunity to do the same. And they will be worried that Hamas will exploit this 
to reposition, uh, to slip away anybody they, they want to slip away. And of course, one of the uh, requirements of the, agree- the agreement was that Israel wouldn't fly aerial surveillance over uh, Gaza during the period. And that, that will certainly cause the Israeli military some concern. Although they've got other intelligence methodologies they can use to mitigate that, it will still be a concern to them. And how confident are you that the ceasefire will hold? And what constitutes a breach? Yeah, I mean, I think that's where, you know, the, the, the this is all about faith and confidence, isn't it? Uh, and... You know, we can't pretend there's much faith or confidence between the Israelis and, and Hamas. And so it doesn't take very much for a ceasefire like this to be compromised. I mean, it really doesn't, you know, either because genuinely one side feels that bad faith has been displayed, or frankly, because they're looking for evidence of, of bad faith. They're almost kind of waiting for, for an, an excuse. Um, and so it won't take very much, you know. It really, really won't. You know, what is what is a breach of a ceasefire? Well, it, well, it's it's one man's, one side's interpretation, you know. And I, d- I doubt very much that they've set out in detail what would constitute a breach of ceasefire. You know, is it one trigger happy individual with a with a machine gun, or is it an airstrike? You know, where, where, where's the boundary point on on that? It'll come down to judgment, uh, and you know. That those who negotiated the ceasefire will hope very much that cool heads prevail, because because there'll be there'll be high stress through this process. You know the Palestinians haven't even uh, uh, identified which uh, Israeli hostages will be handed over, in part because they're not in control of some of them. You know they're held by other militia groups, so there's a huge amount to play out, uh, and there'll be considerable jeopardy throughout. What is, what is set to be a four-day process. And after this four-day ceasefire, the Qataris are talking as if this is a stepping stone to a longer peace agreement, but Israel are saying the job is not done, and it's as you were. Yeah, absolutely. Prime Minister Netanyahu, really clear, this is not the end of the war. It is a pause uh, to... Uh, exchange uh, hostages, uh, in the case of the Israelis, prisoners in case of the, of the Palestinians. Of course, the negotiators will want it to be the, the stepping stone that then leads towards a extended ceasefire uh, and, and a peace process. But you can see why the Israelis wouldn't buy into that. They've been really clear what their military objective is, uh, which is the, the um, elimination of Hamas. They cannot even begin to have claimed to have eliminated Hamas yet. They've certainly caused some attrition to Hamas, but but there's no way their stated military objective uh, is close to being achieved yet. Looking back at your time as one of the key people who defeated ISIS, what are the similarities and what are the differences in the approach of the IDF and the challenge of the IDF when you look back at, at your own experience? And how did you decide that the job was done? Yeah, I mean, you know, there are there are plenty of similarities in terms of the nature of urban warfare, fighting in cities, but um, the strategic setting was very, very different. So, what do I mean by that? Well, in the case of uh, Iraq, there was an outside um, invader, for want of a better term, ISIS, uh, were were in the sovereign cities of of Iraq. Um, 
Uh, I mean, at one point they advanced all the way down to Baghdad, but by by the time we were going to Mosul, you know, they were still holding Iraq's second city. And so it was Prime Minister Badi and his forces liberating their sovereign city. You know, that's very different to what the Israelis have, where they're going into Gaza to have a, have an, a military effect. So, so a big difference there. I think another important difference is that ISIS were going to fight and die. Now, some of their leaders chose to slip away back to Raqqa and Syria for, for the next phase of the campaign, uh, but the bulk of the fighters were going to stay and uh, fight to fight to the death. Uh, that is not necessarily the case for Hamas. Hamas may choose to do that. It's a perfectly valid strategy that they might choose to pursue. But my sense is they, they will fight and delay and, and cause as much damage to the Israelis as they can before using the tunnel network to slip away to continue the, the fight long, longer term. So, uh, you know, big difference there. I think another important difference is, is the, the Iraqi security forces were as good as they could be um, in the time we had to prepare them. You know, they had been all but defeated by ISIS uh, when ISIS first surged into into Iraq, and they did a fantastic job in you know getting their mojo back, getting back into the fight, and retaking their cities, but but with coalition assistance. I mean, the Israeli security forces are you know the, probably the most experienced urban uh, combat force on on the planet. You know, they're a, tier, a top tier military. So you know, there's there's an awful lot of differences. But once battle is joined, and you are fighting in a city. The similarities are, are uh, you know, very clear. And is the IDF hamstrung in some ways by its determination to take a moral line in terms of the way it warns and drops leaflets and makes phone calls? And is that a, is it that that almost a tactical disadvantage for them? Well, from a pure military commander's point of view, you you want surprise. Um, and doing those kind of uh, conceptual door knocks uh, clearly seeds some surprise. Um, but equally, it's necessary in a city because you know that there are Palestinian civilians all over the battlefield. You know that uh, it's not in your military interest to cause civilian casualties, nor indeed um, as an individual. You know, morally, they're human beings. They don't, they don't want to kill people uh, where, they, where they don't need to. So, you know, it, it's a balanced judgment, isn't it? And, you know, they would much prefer a situation where northern Gaza uh, was only occupied by Hamas fighters. That's not the case. Uh, and so they, they have to work, you know, with the, with the circumstances they find. They know they need to work with it inside international humanitarian law. They've got to operate within the law of armed conflict. Uh, and, and that requires them to make those sorts of judgments. How concerned do you think they are about other fronts opening up? They've been not insignificant, but there hasn't been the full-pronged attack from Hezbollah that we thought might happen. How do you think that they're weighing up those potential other fronts? Yeah, but I think at the front end, back in early October, it seemed an entirely realistic possibility that Lebanese Hezbollah would mount some kind of genuine offensive up on on in northern Israel, uh, and you saw that in the way the Israelis responded early on. You know, they had a big force facing Gaza, but they absolutely balanced uh, onto the other fronts: northern Israel, Golan Heights, facing facing Syria. Um, that hasn't manifested itself to the degree that that 
they and others were worried about. Um, now, there's no doubt they have been on the receiving end of harassing attacks, you might call, you know, just irritant attacks all the way through. So the Israelis can't take their eye off those those fronts. And, and indeed, in recent days, there's been a little bit of an uptick in, in those attacks. But they haven't they haven't ever developed into something more significant. It is interesting to consider why that is, because Lebanese Hezbollah, you know, clearly uh, strongly influenced by by Iran. It would feel as though Iran is just keeping, you know, the reins on on activities. It is. It would seem to me it's not in his uh, in Iran's interest for there to be a wider spread of the, of the conflict. You know, that drags America in potentially. I just don't think it's in Iran's interest to do that. So I think they will want to continue to harass uh, Israel, but but not allow it to spread to the to the next stage. And you also see that, of course, in the Iranian-backed militias in in Iraq attacking U.S. forces. Something like sixty-seven attacks, I think, over the last month or so, onto American bases in Iraq and and Syria that have caused cas- casualties. Uh, but again, my sense is that Tehran will be moderating those attacks very carefully to make sure they, you know, they're an irritant uh, to America, but they they won't want to kind of they won't want it to go over a threshold that sees significant uh, escalation. That's not saying the Americans aren't responding. You know, they they have been striking back against those they, those militia forces. But, but there's a sweet spot that I think Iran won't want to go beyond, and we should certainly hope that that's the case. Retired Major General Rupert Jones there. That brings an end to this week's episode of Israel's War on Terror. You can search for more instalments wherever you typically get your podcasts. Please let us know in the comments if you've any questions you'd like us to answer, and we'll do our best to take them on in the coming weeks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>